0: We're continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, returning to verses 19 to 26 of chapter 3, after taking a preliminary look at that section uh, just last week. Now with these verses, Paul is shifting direction. You may remember he's moving from an extended discussion of the sinfulness and the unrighteousness of humanity that's been going on ever since verse 18 of chapter 1. He's moving from that into another extended discussion on the righteousness of God. Or as Morris puts it, having made it devastatingly clear that all mankind is caught up in sinfulness, Paul turns his attention to the way that sinfulness is overcome. And the key concept here behind what God has done to overcome sin and sinfulness is, in these verses, the righteousness of God. That's the key idea in these verses. Now if you've been with us from the beginning of this series, you may recall that we've already taken sort of a brief look at understanding and unpacking this idea of the righteousness of God. Paul first introduced it all the way back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, in a very limited, almost cryptic fashion. What, while, but while he did introduce it briefly, he did introduce it nonetheless, and he did so strategically because, I think, before he launched into this extended discussion of the sinfulness of humanity, he wanted to give a little foretaste of the good news, which he did in one sixteen 16 to 17. And he did this so that his listeners, I think, could really dial in and 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 to keep them from actually shrinking back from the things that he is about to say, which are pretty hard realities to hear. In other words, he gave them just enough of the good news to enable them to endure the bad news without giving in to despair. Well, the bad news has been delivered, and after a number of weeks... On that, We find ourselves on the other side of it, and so we're now ready to return to this previous discussion on the righteousness of God, hopefully with a new appreciation of it and increased readiness to to understand why the good news is in fact so good. And so as we return to this discussion, we're going to do so this morning by asking and starting to answer uh, five questions about the righteousness of God, some of which we'll answer today, the remainder of which next week. The five questions are... What is it? Why do we need it? How is it even possible that we might obtain it? What is it based upon? And how do we come to possess it? What is it? Why do we need it? How is it even possible that we might obtain it? What is it based upon? How do we come to possess it? All of that is in these verses this morning. Before we look at that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us this morning to listen with the appropriate degree of attention and gratitude as we consider this marvelous thing that you have done in bestowing your righteousness upon us, knee-deep in unworthiness as we are. Move us by your kindness and mercy to respond to you and then to imitate you Especially in the way that you move outward with compassion and mercy toward us. Help us to mirror that particular movement and so honor you by moving in the same ways toward others who also bear your image. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans three nineteen to twenty six. Now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For, or because, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, all the way back in verse 18 of chapter 1, we read there about how the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness of men. The wrath of God. Now in the verses before us this morning, there's kind of a counterbalance to that statement. We see that not only has the wrath of God been made manifest... But something else has been made manifest, and that is the righteousness of God has also been revealed and made manifest. But as we'll see further along, it's very important, even though we're thinking now about the righteousness of God, to to not lose sight of the fact that the wrath of God has been revealed, because it helps us to understand what Paul is and is not now saying here. We'll get to that when we talk about this concept of propitiation At any rate, let's get started by thinking about the first of our five questions, the righteousness of God. Uh, What is it? What does Paul mean by this phrase, righteousness of God? Well, borrowing from an earlier discussion, earlier sermon, we can say this about the righteousness of God. It's referring to the righteousness or the right standing, a right standing, right relationship that God uh, imparts or grants to the sinful person who has not merited it, and who because of his sin has no business having any standing at all with a holy and just God. And as such, the phrase, the righteousness of God, has the sense of the righteousness that God imparts, the righteousness that He bestows on a person. Imagine for a moment a kingdom back in the day when kings and kingdoms were the going thing, and the ruler, the king, has been on the throne for a while and he has lots of enemies as all kings do and some of them have plotted against him. They've been, he's imprisoned some of these uh, and for treason and they're on death row, so to speak, awaiting the day of their trial and uh, likely eventual hanging. And so the king one day decides to visit the dungeon and when he arrives... He determines to approach one of his enemies and quite out of the blue and not as a consequence of anything this particular enemy has done, the king determines that he's going to pardon this criminal of his treason. He's going to release him from the prison and crazily enough, he's going to take this person in and adopt him as one of his own and bring him into the family. So in that scenario, the king takes a person whose former relationship with him was adversarial who as a result had no standing with him. Other than that, he was a sworn enemy. And he's now brought that person into an entirely new and different relationship with himself. No longer is the enemy, but he's in fact now part of the family. The relationship before was all wrong. But now this person is brought into a right relationship with the king. This is what God has done for the undeserving sinner. Moved him or her, from having the standing of an enemy to having a right standing, to being rightly related to God, to being in the family of God's forgiven people. That's what the righteousness of God is about, a new standing before God and with God. And as part of his wanting to be clear about what the righteousness of God is all about, Paul, as he's talking about this subject, wants to make sure that his readers understand that this righteousness that gets bestowed on the sinner is not a function or a consequence of a person's having successfully observed the Mosaic law. That's what he's getting at when he says in verse 21, that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's saying that the scriptures talk about this, they point to this kind of righteousness that only God can supply, but they themselves are not the means to obtaining it. The scriptures that point to it are not the means to obtain it. At the risk of being redundant, let me just say again that what he's referring to here is any kind of perspective that looks at the law of God and sees it and approaches it as a means by which a person can merit the blessing of God by keeping it maybe not even perfectly, but at least sufficiently. In other words, by having a pretty good track record. It's a mentality that's based on all kinds of assumptions. That mentality has all kinds of assumptions built into it about God and about oneself and about your abilities to obey, all of which upon close examination, every one of those assumptions are deeply, deeply problematic. But the basic idea is that if you're good or at least good enough, God will love you and reward you. But Paul is saying, no, the right standing that God bestows upon the unrighteous person does not come as a result of that sort of thing. It's not based on law keeping. It comes in another way and for another reason. And the other way and the other reason are seen right there in verse 22. The kind of righteousness that Paul is talking about is the kind that comes through a person's faith or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you look at verses 21 and 22, you see the contrast being set up between two very different ways of thinking about righteousness. There is a conception of righteousness that's allegedly the result of meritorious obedience and law-keeping. In short, a righteousness that places faith or trust in something that we do. And over against that is this other conception of righteousness, the kind that comes about as a consequence of having faith in, or trusting in, or believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, it's a righteousness that places faith or trust in something that Jesus does, or did. And that's really the heart of this contrast. Trusting is something we do, versus trusting is something that Jesus does. And it's right there in verses 21 and 22. So then in summary, we can say that the righteousness of God is a right standing with himself that comes about not as a consequence of something we do, but as a consequence of our trusting in something that Jesus did. Which leads us to the second question where we move from thinking about the righteousness of God, what it is, to considering why we so desperately need it. And the passage states the answer pretty plainly, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, because we've spent the past number of weeks working our way through Romans one eighteen to 3.18, which has been all about the unrighteousness and justifiable condemnation of the entire human race, we don't have to spend a great deal of time on this question, but there's a couple of things worth pointing out about verse 23. For starters, the statement that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is really an effective summary, I think, of everything we've been looking at up to this point. Paul's shown the sinfulness of the Gentiles in to 32 and of the Jewish people in one and following. He's kind of shown that separately. But here he combines both of them under the umbrella of the word all when he says all have sinned. Notice also how Paul talks about sin here in terms of falling short, falling short of the glory of God. What Paul has in mind, I think, is the situation of man and woman in the Garden of Eden where before the fall into sin, humanity perfectly imaged God. Perfectly imaged God. That is to say, the imprint of God upon them was clear. The handiwork of their Creator was clearly evidenced in them. They were a good reflection of the wisdom and power and majesty and kindness of their Creator. They reflected well His glory. But ever since the fall into sin, the image of God which remained was also distorted by sin. Not only in Adam and Eve, but it continues to be distorted and marred in all of those that have descended from them in all kinds of ways. And as such, humanity falls far short of the glory of God, of reflecting the glory of God that we once did in an undistorted way and in a way which clearly pointed beyond ourselves to God. So that reflection of His glory wasn't about our glorification. It went right through us to the Creator. To put it another way, we are much less the sorts of people now and image bearers of God than what we were intended to be. We aren't what we're meant to be. Indeed, nothing, nothing is what it was meant to be. So all humanity is bound up in this unrighteousness. All humanity stands before God condemned, justly deserving His wrath. And the essential problem in our sin, as we saw last week, it's not because we don't measure up on the horizontal plane here occupied by our peers. That's not the problem. In other words, it's not because we fall short of the glory of man that we have a problem here or that we're in trouble, or that we come off badly in some sort of comparison with others. In fact, you may come off pretty well in a comparison with a certain number of people. But the reality, and that reality, while possibly true, is also completely irrelevant. As we saw last week. Because someone can be a pretty good person with regard to others, and in the very same moment be disdaining and despising and ignoring God. All the while, you're a pretty good person. And that's where the essential problem is. It's this relationship, the vertical. Something is badly broken right here. We don't seek after God. We don't pursue Him. His glory and honor and clearly reflecting that glory and honor are not our chief concern. Our concerns are much more pedestrian, much more centered upon us and our glory and our comfort and our hopes and our dreams. So the reason we need a righteousness from God and of God is because in ourselves we are broken and sinful. We fall far short of the glory of God, which we're meant to image. And we're thus bound up and condemned by our unrighteousness in the sight of God. Well, after thinking about what the righteousness of God is and why we so desperately need it, the third question I want us to consider this morning is this. How is it even possible how is it even possible that we might obtain the righteousness of God, this right standing? In other words, how is it that undeserving as we are, there even exists the possibility of anyone obtaining this? And the short answer to that question is seen in verse 24, where it talks about how all those who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God are justified by His grace as a gift. By His grace as a gift. Those words point out the fact that the bottom line reason that a right standing with God is possible is simply and only, only because God has determined in His heart to be kind and gracious to His people. God has determined for His own reasons and under no obligation whatsoever or compulsion He has determined to freely bestow upon undeserving people the gift of righteousness. Put it another way, what this passage makes clear among other things is that when it comes to making people right with Himself, God is the initiator. God is the one who always moves first. Always moves first. Salvation, being made right with God, is always a consequence of God's predetermination to move first and to do so in deliberate, intentional, and always effective ways. As Stott points out, no formulation of the gospel is biblical unless it retains the fact that God is always the initiator of the work of salvation. Any other formulation of the gospel is not biblical. It's not the case that people move first and God responds. God always moves first. It's always an act of grace. It's always a gift, which brings us to the fourth question after thinking about what the right righteousness of God is, why we need it, how it's even possible that we could have it, we need to answer the question, what's it based upon? Or to put it in more theological language, what is the ground? What is the ground of this righteousness? What is the, at the heart of it? What is the foundation upon which it's built? And of all the questions we consider this morning, this one's probably carrying the greatest amount of freight, And the main reason is simply that this question is dealing with the heart and soul of the gospel, the very core, the truths that lie at the very center of what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus. So for that reason alone, it's an important question. Uh, Leon Morris thinks this is the most important paragraph ever written. That's what he said. It's an important question for another reason. Because it gets at a concern that some objectors have raised about the goodness and justice of God. And this concern, if you put that in the form of a question, goes something like this. How is it possible for a righteous God to simply declare that unrighteous people are now righteous? Without either compromising His righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? That's a fair question. Because as one writer points out, all throughout the Old Testament, you see example after example of God doing things like telling his judges to justify the righteous and to condemn the wicked. Or, you see in the Old Testament, uh, God getting angry at people who pervert justice by acquitting the guilty. He gets upset about that. And then you get to the New Testament, and there God is, big as life, justifying the unrighteous, bringing the worst enemies into his own family. How can God do this? The answer is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is how God can do all that he does. He can hold to all that he holds to. Be all that he is and expect all that he expects without himself being unjust or immoral, without impugning his own character. You could say that the cross of Christ both demonstrates as well as guards the character of God. It's the ground, it's the basis from which flows the righteousness that God bestows. So let's unpack that a little bit and see how that is the case. When we look at the cross of Christ as presented in these verses, there are at least four ways we can think about that. We're only going to do two this morning There's a host of things happening with no one description really completely capturing what God was doing and accomplishing in and through the cross. Each image that's in here contributes something unique to the overall understanding of what God was doing on the cross. And as usual, we don't have enough time to do full justice to any one of these concepts, but we'll say something about them. The first thing that took place at the cross was... Justification. Justification. We see this referred in two places. uh, In these verses at least. First thing, verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, justified by His grace as a gift. Then again, verse 26. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross, God graciously justified all those that trusted in and would trust in Jesus. But what does that mean? Essentially it means this. Justification is a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It's a word used to describe God's determination to pardon or forgive a sinful person, to accept them as righteous, as standing in a right relation to himself on account of their having been credited with the righteousness of another, namely Jesus. James Boyce talks about it in this way. Justification is not a reference. It's important. It's not a reference to people actually becoming more holy. It is true that they will become increasingly upright if God is actually at working in their lives, because they have been justified. But justification does not itself refer to any transformation. When a judge justifies somebody, he does not make that person upright or blameless. No changes are made in the person whatsoever. Rather, the judge declares that in his or her judgment, the person is not guilty of the accusation that has been made and is instead in a right standing before the law that the judge was appointed to administer. But as Boyce goes on to say, this is where it's so important to remember that the teaching of this passage is not merely that God justifies sinners. We aren't justified by sheer declaration. That in itself, that would be an outrage. It's not sheer declaration. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That changes it completely. God's declaring believers to be righteous, not on the basis of their own works, but on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. If it was just declaration, that's a problem. But it's not that. It's on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. God declares that He has accepted the sacrifice of Christ as the payment of our debt to the divine justice. And in place of the sin, He imputes Christ's righteousness to us. gives us credit for it. Justification is one thing that takes place in and through the cross of Christ and forms the ground or the basis upon which this righteousness that God bestows is found. A second image is found here. First one, justification, is a legal image. The second one comes from the marketplace and is, in a sense, a kind of economic image. And the key word here is redemption, as it appears in verse 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's behind this word? Uh, One writer talks about it this way. He says redemption is a commercial term from the marketplace. It was used as slaves who were purchased in order to be set free. And in that transaction they were said to be redeemed. That's the word that was used. Jesus does this for us. He redeems us from our captivity to sin. His blood is is the price, the ransom price. Mark 10.45 talks about that. If you look ahead to Romans 6:23, not there yet, but if you look ahead to Romans 6:23, you'll hear Paul saying this. Paul says, "The wages of sin is death." So at the end of the day, this statement is saying that sin is a form of indebtedness and that only the death of the sinner can pay the bill. As Boyce puts it. And at the cross, Jesus pays the bill, not for his sin, he had none but for His people. And because that debt has been paid, we've been redeemed. Bought with a price, set free in Jesus. That's as much as we have time for this morning. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about two other things that were taking place on the cross of Christ. Two very important things. One of them being the propitiation of God's wrath and the vindication of God's own character. Namely his justice. Following that, we'll look at the all-important fifth question about the righteousness of God, which is really sort of the linchpin to the whole thing. Now that we know what the righteousness of God is, how do we come to possess it? How does it become ours? How we benefit from this truth. It's an extremely important question. We'll pick that up next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy to us, most especially and most clearly seen in the cross of Christ by which you brought us into a right standing with yourself. So help us to grow in our appreciation of just what it is that you accomplished there so that we would better understand and value what you have done so that we would love you better accordingly, more fully so that we would be better motivated to share what you have done with those who have not yet appreciated it, but need to as badly as we do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We now have a time to take up a collection, an offering for those who want to support the work of this church or different ministries that are supported through this church.